This night was the long night. There was darkness and silence just like every other night that ever was. But on this night, the silence and the darkness lacked hope for those who could not sleep. For Peter, who suffered through unimaginable guilt and shame over his betrayal. For Judas Iscariot, who found that he could not suffer through it. And for so many others. We set aside this time tonight to remember the darkness that always comes before the dawn. We remember it because it is that darkness which makes light so valuable. It is silence that makes music so sweet. All blessings come in a context. The cross a symbol which has come to mean so many things over the centuries, some sacred, some desecrated, is a context into which God's love arrives in our world. Forgiveness of sin, hope for eternal life, freedom from the uh, freedom and defeat from evil, all gifts from God arrived in the context of the cross. Well, tonight, we focus on the cross so that on Sunday, the empty tomb means what it should. We focus on the context of the cross because to do so honors and glorifies the one who hung there. And to do so helps us to see the true value of his gifts. Tonight, we remember by exploring the seven last words of Jesus. When we review all four gospel writers' telling of the crucifixion, we find that there are seven statements that Jesus made from the cross. At first glance, some are deeply profound, others heartbreaking, and others mysterious. We have asked seven AC3 writers to prepare brief reflections on each of these statements. And we will hear what these statements inspired in each writer and then consider what they inspire in us. This is a night reserved for reflection, contemplation, and prayer. And we're so happy that parents chose to bring their children. This is a significant learning opportunity for the youngest seekers among us. But we also ask parents to be aware of the impact their children can have on others. So if they need extra wiggle room, or maintaining an appropriate level of quiet isn't possible for your family, please use the wedge or the lobby tonight. Let's begin with a moment of silence and then prayer. Almighty God, we pray that in your grace you behold this, your family, the church, for whom the Lord Jesus was betrayed, suffered, and died. 
Look on us tonight with the same mercy that poured from you on this cross. Through your Spirit, be our teacher and our guide as we seek to know you more, as we seek to understand ourselves in light of your truth, and as we offer up our hearts, our minds, and bodies as a living sacrifice. We pray that it will be holy and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus was alone, bleeding on the cross, facing certain death. Even so, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Betrayed by his friends, his followers scattered like frightened children, even so, he said, Father, forgive them. Suffering as he was, in agony and with shuddering breaths, they laughed and knelt in front of him, betting to see who would win his clothing. Even so, he said, Father, forgive them. They weren't sorry, they weren't scared, they didn't beg forgiveness. They gloated, believing they had won. Even so, he said, Father, forgive them. He had walked among those who now betrayed him, those who now screamed accusation at him. Even so, he said, Father, forgive them. Jesus didn't wait for the victory, the resurrection, the ascension. He was in the worst of it among his tormentors when he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. How could he truly mean it in that moment? We are so easily distracted away from him. We ignore him and fill our bellies and our hearts with our own desires. Even so, he says, Father, forgive them. We treat casually his promise of eternal life. We carelessly ignore the supernatural. We pay him the same notice we might an acquaintance. Still, he stands before the Father, extending forgiveness over us. Jesus didn't wait for Easter. He began standing in the gap for us on Good Friday. He began loving us before creation, before you and I could even understand it. Before we can thank him for Easter, we must thank him for Good Friday, for the work that began so long ago, for the victory already won, for the forgiveness extending over you from now until eternity without end, for standing before the Father on your behalf, saying, Father, forgive them. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Paradise. Just the word conjures images, pools of crystal blue waters, fine sandy beaches, palm trees swaying in a light breeze. These things can be seen, touched, tasted, and experienced but the tropics can get hot, good chance of a sunburn. What about Eden? It was called paradise on earth. It had everything Adam and Eve could ever desire, 
food, good weather, provisions galore. They resided with God in the gardens, but it had snakes. Paradise of the Bible had the craftiest serpent. The promised land was to be paradise for Moses and all the Israelites. These followers of God were assured of property and lots of milk and honey, a whole land full of the stuff. But battles were waiting. There were giants who underestimated God. The criminal asked you, Jesus, to remember him when you entered your kingdom. You both awaited death as you hung on crosses. He confessed he was there because of his own actions. You assured him he would be with you in paradise. But he was guilty of murder. But what was your crime to be put to death on the cross? You did not steal. You multiplied fish and bread and wine. You did not covet. You encouraged the release of possessions. You did not hate. You demonstrated the Father's love and grace. You did not lie. You told people the truth. But now we look upon the cross and we see your reflection and understand how to enter. We admit we are criminals. We fight giants who underestimate God. We stay alert watching for the crafty serpent. We wear SPF 50. And we declare, Jesus, you are the only way we can get in. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Walking into my office after another weekend-long seminar, I see on the center of my desk a three-by-three post-it with the message, Please see me, written in bold red ink. I quickly recognized the handwriting as that of my boss, and immediately a flurry of questions started running through my mind. What could there possibly be left to say? Haven't we covered everything already? Was I doing something wrong? Nervously, I walked down the hall to his office and tapped on his door to grab his attention. You asked to see me? He gestured towards the chair opposite his desk. Yes, John, come on in and grab a seat. I called you in here because I'm going to be out of the office for a while and... While I'm away, I'd like you to take over some of my responsibilities. Me? Me? I exclaimed. Are, 
are you sure I'm qualified? Of course, he exclaimed. There's no one more qualified. I've worked alongside you and seen what you're capable of. I know your attitude and your heart for this work. You've been through the best training. You know the manual so well it's like you practically wrote it. Most of all, though, I believe in you. In fact, I'd go so far as to say, I would trust you with my own mother. I returned to my desk more confident than I'd ever been. How could I feel anything other than honored after such a humbling moment? Woman, here is your son. Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every human being is unique, ordained by God and shaped by genetics, environment, culture, and circumstances to become like no other. A singular appearance, a singular style, set of values, hopes, dreams, and fears. And yet every one of us alive or who has ever lived perhaps a hundred billion people share a handful of things that are identical. We all had mothers. We all had beating hearts and functioning lungs. And we all have experienced the profound sensation of being forsaken, utterly alone, forgotten and betrayed. There is not a human being who survives to the age of consent who does not know that feeling except one. For more than 30 years, he walked the narrow path in intimate connection with the Father, doing only what he saw the Father doing, saying only what he was given to say. A perfect dance, a oneness like none other in the whole universe. But today, for the sake of love, for our sake, he would come to know what a hundred billion others know by becoming the sin that each one of us bears. He would become the one and only thing that could separate him from the Father whom he'd never been apart from, even for one single second. Oh, the breathtaking loss. How could he not cry out when it all fell upon him and when he felt for the first time the absence of the Father? What does a modern world with its countless distractions and idolatry offer? Everything. Everything that the Father is not. One must be forsaken for the other. Oh God, to feel the loss of all else but you. The living water thirsted. I write this reflection in a moment of thirst. A moment in my life where I am acutely aware of my own desperate position, living in the tension of an unmet need. Biologically speaking, thirst is a physical sign of the human body's need for water. Having endured torture, 
blood loss, exhaustion, and the slow agony of suffocation, Christ had been hanging on His cross for six long hours by the time His parched, gasping voice croaked out these two astonishingly vulnerable words. I thirst. It is difficult to conceive of Christ's humanity rather than His divinity. And yet, what is more human than thirst? Thirst, an outward sign of an inward yearning, an unmet need. What is more human than need? The God-man was in need. He was desperate, vulnerable, dependent. Coming into Good Friday, shouldering the pain of my own unmet requires vulnerability. I find myself comforted in the oh-so-human company of my Lord, whose desperation serves to remind us of our own desperation, whose need serves to remind us of our own unmet need as we await, for now, a work not yet finished. We thirst for Him And he thirsts for us. It is finished. But what, O Lord, has finished? You are not here, and we are lonely. Here, the pains of labor still lay sharp and heavy. The land remains cursed, like a dog returning to his vomit. So the foolish are still returning to their folly. And even now, I confess that I look at the speck in my brother's eye while I ignore the log protruding from my own We are finished. Where are you, O Lord, now? Will you come to us from heaven as a noise, like a violent wind? Will you pour forth your spirit on all mankind? Shall your sons and daughters prophesy? Shall young men see visions and old men dream dreams? Are you here, Lord? I feel you here, Lord. I am finished. I am with you now, O Lord. I see myself always in your presence, 
you bowed your head and gave up your spirit for me, for us. You tore the veil and removed the barrier between us. And now, now, I have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Because you have sacrificed all for me, for us. And it is finished. This is what Jesus' mission comes down to at its heart, doesn't it? I'm not a thrill seeker. I have a healthy respect for gravity and therefore do not jump from a bridge with a bungee cord or from a perfectly operating airplane. I have never felt the call to go sailing around the world on a solo journey against nature or to climb Mount Everest. Despite this tendency to play it safe, I have been called to take a greater challenge than any thrill seeker can find. In fact, we have all been called. Few, however, answer this call. Faith. We are all made differently. We all have different backstories. We all have different skills and gifts. But in the end, our configuration prepares us for the greatest risk we could imagine. Faith is not for the faint of heart. A leap in this direction can lead you into some amazing adventures, trying events, and yes, impossible feats of strength. Before we can fully take on the three main missions, to love God, love the church, and love the world, we must start in faith. We cannot live the faith of a fully devoted follower of Christ without first coming to the decision that He is Christ. We must accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, Son of the one true God. We must exhibit the unmitigated trust Jesus had that His Father would be there to take His Spirit into His loving hands and carry it to safety. Jesus tells us we must take up our cross and follow Him. This means we must be willing to sacrifice everything, even to the point of death. Jesus has made the sacrifice for us so we can be made right with God and can therefore be in His presence. The call to be followers of Christ is not a promise of ease, widespread acceptance, or even a stable life. It is often anything but these things. Not all of us will be called to be missionaries, pastors, or even deacons. Some may be called to the jungles, to deserts, or the streets of a war-torn country. Many will be called to serve right here in our community, in our church, and in our homes. 
What is clear, however, while few of us will ever be called, we must be willing, even eager, to commit to going up Calvary's hill and die upon the cross. And in doing so, know without a doubt that we, in faith, can also declare, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Now, perhaps you have noticed the communion table set before you tonight. Perhaps you've been anticipating the climax of our time together when we partake in the bread and the wine and we remember what God has done as we Eucharist, we give thanks. But this is not how our night ends. There is no climax. This is Good Friday. We must endure Friday and Saturday until the sun rises on Sunday. More and more, our world is defined by instant gratification. You can download a book, a movie, or a game in the moment you experience the desire for it. You can buy almost anything you want and have it delivered the next day. You can beckon a driver and have them deliver a milkshake to your door. Never have to change out of your jammies. Now, none of what I've just described in and of itself is bad, nor is it good. It just is. What these things do to us, however, can vary wildly. We can become numb to the real cost of a thing. We forget that someone had to get up early and work hard to, hof- uh, uh, to harvest our coffee beans. We forget that the shiny new doodad waiting for us in the Amazon box was not delivered by a ferry. But gasoline and oil and labor and creativity and precious human existence was consumed to get it to us. Yellow traffic lights are a personal insult, cutting into our well-being. We forget that there are busy people heading the other direction, too. We forget that stores and gyms and call centers that are open 24 hours a day must be staffed by people, people who are away from family and sleep and sunlit parks and mountain meadows. We are forgetting the cost, the real cost of things. And tonight, we gift you with a reminder. This communion table is closed to you tonight. You must wait. Tonight, we remember that there was a time when this table was not available to anyone. There was a time before the cross. Those seven last words had not yet been spoken and the curtain which separated us from the Holy of Holies still hung heavy and impenetrable. We were isolated from God. There was a time of waiting. There was a darkness into which light shone. There was a silence into which the Word of God was spoken. And tonight... We remember.
before you get up to leave, please consider the inside of your program. This passage from Isaiah 53, written 700 years before the events of Easter, reminds us that humanity had waited for much longer than any of us. We live on the other side of Easter, and so our waiting is self-imposed. Our pride, ignorance, anger, and fear are the only things that stand between us and the gift of the risen Christ. But there was a time when men and women had to wait. Read that passage quietly to yourself. Consider those who waited lifetimes, generations, and centuries for this hope. And then consider people who you know are still waiting, who are trapped by pride, ignorance, anger, or fear. And then perhaps write their first name in the space just to the side of the Isaiah passage and tear off that perforation. Tonight, as you file past this closed table, I hope you will long for the bread and the juice. But don't fret. It's coming. The elements will be available at a weekend service again in May, or you may choose a time before then to share communion on your own. As you pass by, take that portion from your program where you've written your loved one's name, that person who is still waiting, and drop it in this basket here as a token. Offer a prayer for them and consider giving them an invitation to this Sunday's Easter presentation, which we promise will be safe, truthful, creative, and a challenge for them to embrace the truth that the waiting is over. I will pray, and then you'll be dismissed to come up past this communion table and do business. And please maintain silence as you come forward and throughout the room. Feel free to step out into the lobby to have conversation. Dear Heavenly Father, tonight is the long night. Tonight we join with those who are far from God in just this small ritual way to wait with them. Lord, we remember the sacrifice of the cross and we let the gift of what's coming Easter morning, that anticipation, Lord, fill us with hope and with courage through your Spirit. And Lord, I pray for every name written on all these scraps of paper as they're dropped here. Lord, through your Spirit, through, your, through the gift of your Son, God, draw them to you as we anticipate the day that the waiting will be over finally. Tonight, Lord, we wait. And we accept the gift of Jesus once again. In his name we pray. Amen.